Stay seated. Only get saved once and we're doing good. Not over and over and over again. You know what I mean? Come on now. <laughs> All right, he does. You're right. He saves us from our own foolishness. And he's done that many times. All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer, then we'll get started. Father, it is good to be in your house tonight. We are thankful, Lord, for just the time to have fellowship together this evening. We're thankful, Lord, for the music. God, I pray that you'd bless now the effort to preach your word, that you'd use it to speak to our hearts. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. That has no bearing on tonight's message, but I do want to remind you of what we talked about last week because I think it's an encouragement and I think it can be a help to us. You may remember that Christ was speaking to the disciples and he shared with them that he was mindful whenever a sparrow fell to the ground. We also watched as the sparrow in their day was a worthless animal, and so that was a pretty amazing thing for Christ to uh, shared with the disciples that he was aware when they fell to the ground. He also said to the disciples that the hair of their head was numbered, something that would seem really unnecessary, something that would seem very mundane. But what it let them know was, because Christ went on to say that they were worth more than many sparrows or many birds, what it let them know was this, is that God was aware of what was going on in their lives. There was nothing taking place in their lives that they were not mind, that he was not mindful of. And so I tried to remind us last week that we serve an unchanging God. And because of that, that lets us know that God is still fully aware of what's taking place in our life. There is nothing happening in our lives right now, and there will never be anything that happens in our life that God is not fully aware of. And that is something that we can rejoice in, and that is something that we can be thankful for to know that God is always mindful of us. What love that reveals of him toward us to care that much. So that's what we talked about last week, and tonight we are moving on. We're going to be in Mark chapter 7 this evening. Mark chapter 7 is where we're going to be, and as you find your place, I want to share a story with you. This will take just a couple of moments to do, so please be patient, but I think this illustrates a, a good point that I want us to consider tonight. Several years ago, right after Christmas, Susie and I were at an outlet mall, and if you've ever been to an outlet mall, then you understand how those are set up. It's just one store after another store after another store after another store, and so there we were, and we had been in a number of stores. And along this line, or in this row of stores, was a store that sold power tools. And for a guy, that was a welcome sight after many of the stores that we had already been in. So I went in really with just the idea and the intention of looking around. I had no intention of buying anything because I really had no need of anything. And yet, because it was after Christmas, they were having some sales and they had some tools on markdown. And there it was on the shelf, a Sawzall for like $25. Now, I can tell you almost every time I've needed a Sawzall in my life. So again, it didn't really present a pressing need. But whenever I saw that Sawzall sitting on the shelf for only $25, I thought to myself, how can you not buy it? You have to have this. So I picked one out for myself. I picked one out for a friend of mine. I went and I paid for them, uh, paid for them, and, and I, I eventually got them home. And, and after I got the Sawzall home, 
I set it on the shelf in the garage with a bunch of other tools I never use. But I had it. So a couple of years ago, when Nathan bought his house, and you all know that it was a fixer-upper, one of the things that we were going to do in order to try to update everything was replace all the doors. And in order to replace old doors with new doors, you have to cut the old doors out. You know what works perfect in a situation like that? A sawzall. I finally had a reason to use the saw that I had bought a couple of years prior. So I took it over the house, and we had been doing a lot of demolition. We had been uh, tearing a lot of things up. I had used that quite a bit, and I would cut out the door frames, and, and everything was going good. And we came to one of the last door frames in his house that we were going to replace. I picked up the saw like I had done on many occasions before, and I pulled the trigger or pushed the button, however you'd like to describe it. I, I did that, and it was like the saw was now in some kind of molasses or something. The blade moved kind of like this. And I thought to myself, well, for $25, what can you expect? I've gotten a lot of use out of this. I, I've, I've been able to get a lot of work done to it. And, and you know what it's like. Well, apparently, I didn't push the button hard enough, so I'm going to push the button a little bit harder, and I got the same response. Not a lot of excitement on the part of the, the saw to do anything. And so I thought, well, I've burned up the motor. I, I've, I've destroyed it. But again, I got my money's worth out of it. But, but again, you know what it's like as a man. I'm going to look at this one more time. So I'm looking at the saw, and here's how familiar I was with the equipment I was using. Right above the button was this little dial thing. Thought, I wonder what that is. I turned it, turned it again, turned it, plugged it back in, pulled the trigger, and the thing took off. I mean, it was running like a champ. It was running just like it had before that episode had taken place. Now, in that moment, I could not blame Susie or Nathan, and I certainly couldn't blame the girls for what had happened. Somehow, inadvertently, and unbeknownst to me, I had turned that dial down to where the blade would hardly move. So for all the power and all the capability that that blade had or that saw had, I was the one responsible for robbing it of its power. So I had to address it in order to get the power back to it the way it needed to operate. You understand that? I robbed it of its power accidentally, unbeknownst to me, but if I had not figured out the problem, the saw would have essentially become worthless because it had no power, even though it was still all available, I just wasn't getting from it what it had to offer. Now, as you keep that in mind, this evening we're going to be, as I said just a moment ago, in Mark chapter 7. 
We're going to be dealing with the Pharisees and the scribes, and here's what we know. Their interaction with Christ never went well. It just never went well, this interaction that Christ had with the Pharisees and the scribes. And so tonight I want us to begin by looking in verse number 3, because it says this, For the Pharisees and all the Jews, except they wash their hands oft, eat not, holding the traditions of the elders. And when they come from the market, except they wash, they eat not, and many other things there be which they have received to hold as the washing of cups and pots, brazen vessels, and of tables. And so here's what we read in verse 3 and 4, that there were these traditions that had been handed down from one generation to the next, to the next, to the next. The Pharisees, the Jews, had adopted these traditions. And one of the traditions was this. We've talked about this before, I'm pretty sure. But one of the traditions was this, is that they would wash their hands often, and they would do so certainly before eating. Now, I think every one of us tonight would agree that that is a good tradition to have. I think every one of us, if, if we suspect any kind of dirt, if we suspect any kind of uncleanness on our hands, or, or a lack of cleanliness there on our hands, if we suspect that and we're about to sit down and eat, I think most of us are of the mindset, probably ought to wash our hands before we partake. So the Pharisees and the scribes, they had this tradition. It was something they held to. It was something that they would observe with, with great regularity. And so as you think about that, now for just a moment, look in verse number 2. Because again, the Pharisees and the scribes, it says in verse number 1 that they had come to Christ. And it says that they had come to Christ there in Jerusalem. And it says in verse number 2, it says, And when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is to say with unwashing hands, they found fault. So we understand what's happening now in verse number 2. We've got the disciples, and what are they doing? Well, it says specifically that they are eating bread, but it also says in verse number 2 that they are eating their bread with defiled or unwashing hands. So what does that let us know? It lets us know this, that the disciples ate bread without washing their hands first. Might we consider that gross? Well, it would depend on what they had done prior to eating, right? I mean, it would depend on what they had engaged in prior to eating, but again, here's what we would know and here's what we would recognize tonight, I think every one of us, that as we have read through the scripture, that as we have read through the, the stories on so many occasions, here's what we know, is that there was not a specific law necessarily relating to the number of times that a person had to wash their hands, when they had to wash their hands, before what meals, whatever it may be. But yet the, the Pharisees, it said in verses 3 and 4, that they had this tradition of washing their hands often, so verse number two, it's, it's pretty important to the overall context of this. It says, whenever they saw the disciples eating bread with defiled hands or unwashed hands, it says they found fault. They found fault. So what does it mean whenever the scripture tells us that the Pharisees found fault in the actions of the disciples? Well, it means this, that what they had done was not satisfactory. 
And what they had done was not appropriate. And essentially what the, what the Pharisees determined was this, is that it was not right for the disciples to eat without first washing their hands. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about this. I would imagine some of you have. I don't think about this all the time. But imagine for just a moment being a Pharisee in their day. You've got Christ in your presence. We really can't imagine what that would be like, right? I mean, think about having the literal Son of God in your presence, one who has done amazing miracles, one who has taught some incredible sermons, they have Jesus Christ in their presence, you would think that there would create in them some kind of a desire for some substance in their spiritual life. You would like to think that, would you not? I mean, you'd like to think that, but here's what we know is that that never really happened in their lives. So with as much uh, availability as they had to the presence and to the person of Christ, they, they never really developed a desire to go deeper in their understanding or deeper in their, in their relationship with Christ. We know that to be true. So notice in verse number five, after they have seen what the disciples have done and they have found fault in them of everything they could have approached Christ with on that day, it says in verse number five, Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why walk not thy disciples according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? This has become a big deal to them. Something that should have been no big deal. If they had had any wisdom, if they had had any discernment, if they had had any understanding at all, they would have looked at the actions of the disciples and they would have said to themselves, well, that's not how we would have done it, but, you know, no big deal. No, they have let this become a source of, of consternation in their hearts and in their minds. And so now with everything that they could have come to Christ with, by way of a question, by way of some kind of a concern, here is what they want to know is why don't your disciples wash their hands before they eat. Now, we don't know the spirit in which they said it, but I'm going to suggest to you this evening that it probably wasn't in the best spirit in which they asked it. Christ, no doubt, would have already known their heart. He would have already known their mind. He would have already known that they had found fault in his disciples. So they asked the question, I don't know what they were expecting, but I don't think they were expecting what they heard in verse number 6. In verse number 6, he answered and said unto them, Well hath Isaiah, he answered and said unto them, Well hath Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They have come to Christ with a serious, serious issue. Your disciples didn't wash their hands. Why is it that they do not observe the tradition of the elders? And you know what Christ said? A little bit of ad lib here. Good night. You people are a bunch of hypocrites. 
You're a bunch of fakes. You're a bunch of actors. You're just a bunch of role players. I mean, Isaiah, he said, hath prophesied correctly of you. He hath prophesied well in saying of you that you are a people that honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. It's not that you don't say the right thing, but it's everything about who you are internally. You go through the motions and you act religious. You go through the motions and you act like you're someone who cares. But when it comes to the heart, when it comes to the thing that really matters, you are far from me. There is no closeness between you and me, how you live and what I expect of you and what I require of you. And so notice in verse number seven, it says, Howbeit in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. So what is Christ saying to the Pharisees? He is saying, here's what you have done. You have taught to be doctrine, God's doctrine, the the word of God. You have taught them not the word of God, but the commandments of men. So in all of their religious activity, here's what we know over and over again. Uh, Here's what we know, that the Pharisees taught tradition over the truth of God's word. So whatever had been handed down over the years, however it had been transmitted, however it had been altered maybe throughout the generations, here's what the Pharisees were doing. They were teaching that to be more important than the word of God. Now, would they have admitted to such a thing? Most likely not. Is that what they would have thought they were doing? Probably not. But Christ obviously was right in saying what he said. So he said in verse number 8, For laying aside the commandment of God, ye hold the tradition of men as the washing of pots and cups and many other such like things ye do. And he said unto them, Full well ye reject the commandment of God, that ye may keep your own tradition." So he said, here's what you're guilty of, Pharisees, which are hypocrites. You are more than happy to lay aside the commandments of God so that you can fulfill and teach and promote the traditions of man. You are hypocrites. You say the right thing with your lips, but in your heart you are far from me. Now, I know that we're familiar with all this. I know that this is not anything new. But as you continue reading the next few verses, we make our way to verse number 13, which is where we're going to spend kind of the bulk of our time tonight. In verse number 13, Christ said something. I've never really given this a lot of thought. Don't know if you have. But he says in this verse, making the word of God of none effect. Making the word of God of none effect. Whenever Christ said that the, that the Pharisees were guilty of making the word of God of none effect, what does that mean? Well, it means this, the word's none effect. It means to render void or of no value. To render void or of no value, it also means this, to deprive of force and authority. To deprive of force and authority. 
So what is he saying the Word of God has in that verse? He is saying that the Word of God has force and the Word of God has authority. Are we following this? He is suggesting to the Pharisees and he is making it known unto them that the Word of God has some force and the Word of God has authority. But he said, here is what you have done, Pharisees, and here is what you have done, scribes, that you have made the Word of God, what's already been revealed to you, you have made that to be deprived of any kind of force or any kind of authority. Here is what you have done. You have robbed the Word of God of its power. The power that the Word of God has, you are depriving it of it, and you are choking it down, and you are keeping it from being as powerful as it otherwise could be, thus rendering it useless and void or empty of a purpose. Think about that saw that I mentioned just a moment ago. It had all this power. It had all this force. For lack of better words, it had the authority to cut through wood. It had the authority to cut through those, uh, those uh, nails. It had the authority to cut through everything it did. But what did I do? I deprived it of its force and its, thor- its, its authority. I deprived it of its power. I was the one who unintentionally and unbeknownst to me had choked it down. And if I had not found out what I had done, you know what I would have done to that saw? I would have rendered it useless or vain of no purpose or void of any kind of value. Think about it. Here is Christ speaking of the Word of God. It's got all this power. It's got all this authority. It's got all this force. But he said, Pharisees, you have deprived it of its authority and its force and its power. How did they do it? He tells them exactly how it's done in verse 13, though they didn't ask how they had done it. He says, making the word of God of none effect through what? Through your traditions, which ye have delivered. And many such like things do ye. He said, you know what has caused you to make the word of God of none effect? You know what you've done that has robbed the word of God of its authority and its force and its power? It's because of your tradition and how you lay aside the word of God for the tradition of man that has robbed the word of God of the power that it would otherwise have. So here are the Pharisees, and they've got the Word of God available to them, and all the power that that could have unleashed on mankind in their day. But because of their tradition and their ability to find fault in people who did not do everything just like them, they were responsible for taking away the authority of the Word of God. 
Now, as you think about that, I want us to think about how the Scripture continues to flow. I want us to think about how the Scripture continues to to unfold for us throughout the New Testament. I think all of us are familiar with the book of Hebrews, are we not? We should be. We spent a year and a half going through the book of Hebrews. You should be more familiar with that than you care to think about it sometimes, okay? We're familiar with the book of Hebrews, right? Well, if we're familiar with the book of Hebrews, here's what we know is that you come to chapter 4, and in chapter 4, the Word of God is spoken of specifically. Some of you are familiar with this portion of Scripture. It says of the Word of God that it is quick and powerful. Did you all know that it says that? Okay, so I want us to think about this. The word quick in that context, it doesn't mean that it's fast. Like the word of God is really fast and it's hard to keep up with and, and, and it maintains a quick speed. That's not what it's talking about, right? Whenever the scripture says that the word of God is quick, it means that the word of God is alive. The word that we hold in our hands, it is a living word. It is something that is still as applicable today as it was years ago when it was written. The word of God is still alive. That's important. And the word of God, the scripture tells us, is not only quick, but it is also powerful. What does it mean for something to be powerful? It just means this, that it is effective in in accomplishing what needs to be accomplished. This, friends, this is really important, okay? It is effective in accomplishing what needs to be accomplished. So think about this. In my life, in your life, in the life of any person living today, and any person who will live beyond us, the Word of God is still alive, will always be alive, and the Word of God will always be able to accomplish what needs to be accomplished in a person's life. Because the word of God, it is quick, it is powerful, it is sharper than any two-edged sword. The scripture says it pierces, it divides, it goes to the morrow. The word of God knows how to address issues. It just does. So the word of God has all this power and all this authority and all this force to do what needs to be done in the life of an individual. Here's what I wonder. Are the religious entities and the religious people, are we ever guilty of making the word of God of none effect? The answer is yes. Are we ever responsible for causing the Word of God to be deprived of its force, of its authority, and the effective power that it has? I don't know if you would be like me, but my initial thought wants to be this, no. 
No, I don't have that ability. I don't have that, that capability within myself to, to do that to the Word of God. But you know what I have to be reminded of? I do have that ability. And you have that ability. And this church has the ability to take the Word of God and its power and its authority and its force and its ability to transform a person's life. We have the ability to deprive it of everything it would otherwise be capable of producing. We can do that. How can that be done? I think the scripture tells us, doesn't it? Because of our tradition. Making the word of God, he said, of none effect through or because of your tradition. Now, now follow this, okay? This is, this is important that we follow all this so that we don't jump to any wrong conclusions here, okay? If I become so attached to my tradition that my tradition trumps the word of God, then the word of God that could be working through me will be deprived of its power because I am more worried about tradition than I am the truth of God's word. If I am so wrapped up with what I think is right, what I think has to be the case, what I think has to be true, in the life of every other person or every other church, and and I am so consumed with that, that I find fault in people who don't do it just like me? Listen now. I am then depriving the Word of God of its authority and its force and its power, which actually has the ability to change lives. See, the Scripture said of the Word of God that the Word of God is quick and powerful. The Scripture did not say tradition is quick and powerful. The scripture did not say this, that my opinion is quick and powerful. The only thing that is alive forever and able to produce real change in a person's life is the power of God. But when someone decides to hold so tightly to tradition that they will lay aside the truth of God's word so as to hold on to their tradition and thus find fault in those who don't do it like they do it, they are responsible from keeping the word of God from producing in the way that it could. You say, does that ever happen? Oh, I don't know. Does it? Of course it does. 
I, I know that some of you may be saying tonight, I, I, I don't know this, I just think it's possible. Some of you could be saying tonight, Brother Kyle, this seems to be a theme that you've hit on recently. This seems to be something that, that you've talked about in, in the last few sermons. I don't remember exactly when, but, but this seems like something you've addressed. It is. But can I just share with us tonight how necessary it is for us to be reminded of this over and over and over again? It is so easy for us to get a critical spirit when people don't do things just like us. It is so easy for us to get a critical spirit when when somebody doesn't go through the same routine that we're going through, when somebody doesn't see things exactly like we see them. It is so easy to get a critical spirit. And what we want to do is we want to transform everybody into our thoughts and into our opinions. And that is not what is powerful. The only thing that will change a person's life is the power of the Word of God. That is the only thing that will change it. And until we are willing to accept that, you know what we'll continue to do? We'll continue to choke and deprive the Word of God from the power it could otherwise unleash in a person's life. If you and I want to see God do an amazing work in our lives, you know what we need? We need the Word of God and nothing else. If, if I want God to do an amazing work in my life, you know what I need? I need God's word, not man's tradition. If I want God to do a work in my life, I need only what God's word says and not what some old preacher is telling me. That's not to minimize the wisdom of an older person in my life. But I'm just saying if if all I'm doing is following tradition, then I need to be willing to discard that for the truth and the power of the word of God. And I'm just saying to you tonight, not only is that true for yourself, it is true for anyone that you would have a burden for. If you want to see God work, they need the Word of God, not your opinion. If you want to see God transform a person's life, you don't need to tell them what you think. You need to show them what the Word of God says. If you want to see God do a work in this individual's life, in this family's life, in this person's spiritual walk, it is not dependent upon you telling them what you think. You need to show them the Word of God and let the Word of God work because if the Word of God can't do it, we all need to be reminded we're never going to get the work done. Christ said to the Pharisees, making the Word of God of none effect through your tradition. I don't know how many times We have accidentally and inadvertently deprived the Word of God of its authority and its force and its power. But there is no doubt in my mind that I have done that. I have seen someone do something that was different than me, and I found fault in it. I know I've done it. 
And rather than giving them the only thing that could change their life, that being the word of God, I gave them my opinion and then left frustrated that they weren't changed. I'm just saying, I know I've done it. And I think if most of us were honest tonight, I think most of us tonight would have to admit this, that we have done the same thing. We didn't mean to do it. We didn't do this on purpose. We didn't do it intentionally. But we got so wrapped up in our tradition. We got so wrapped up into our way of thinking. We got so wrapped up into thinking it has to be this way, that that's how we presented it to whoever it was we were trying to convince. And in doing so, we left out the authority of the Word of God. The only thing that people in your life need to be confronted with is the truth of God's word. The only thing they need to be confronted with is thus saith the Lord. Whenever we are willing to present just the word, the word has the power to do whatever needs to be said or do whatever needs to be done. But the moment we began giving it to them according to Kyle, according to Susie, according to whomever. I think this is what you need to do, and I think this is what needs to take place. That is when the power of the Word of God gets dialed down, and it becomes rendered or it becomes useless in the life of the person. It's easy to give opinion, isn't it? It's easy to tell somebody what somebody told us, what somebody told them, and it seemed really good, and it may be okay. But if all we're giving is opinion and tradition, and it's not the Word of God, then we are responsible for depriving the Word of God of the power and the authority that it has. I don't want to do that. I don't think you want to do that. But it is something we have to guard against sometimes daily. Would you agree? We have to guard against it sometimes daily because it is so easy to spout off opinion when we don't have the authority of the Word of God behind us. I don't want to be a Pharisee, I don't want to be a hypocrite. I don't want to be the one who is near him with my lips, but far from him in my heart. I don't want to do that. So what do I have to do? I've got to stop finding fault. And I've got to stop holding on to just my tradition. The tradition in and of itself might be okay. But whenever I begin to find fault, and that begins to be what controls me and my spirit, that is when I am responsible for hurting and depriving the Word of God from its power. I know you know this. I'm just going to say it anyways. I know you know this. Our world desperately needs the Word of God. The Word of God has been given. I'm not sorry. I'm sorry. The world needs the Word of God. For far too long, the world has been the recipient of man's opinion. And man's opinion and man's tradition has not and will not produce what needs to be produced in our land. We need to get serious about the Word of God 
and that alone and nothing else. Let's all stand tonight and bow our heads for prayer. Fathers, we come to you this evening. Lord, I know that this is somewhat of a reminder. I know that this is somewhat of a truth that we have dealt with in recent weeks. But Lord, I know that if we're honest, there are some in here tonight, myself included. We would have to admit just how easy it is to resort back to opinion, to what we were taught, and again, in and of itself, it may not be wrong, it may not be bad, but whenever we develop that critical spirit of others, well, all of a sudden we begin to take away from your power and your authority. God, I pray that you'd help me. I pray that you'd help anyone who struggles with this, Lord, to realize what we're doing and the negative impact it's having. We just need to give you to those who need their lives changed. I pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.